Uh, many of you will, uh, will know that um, Esther and I, we, uh, we love to walk in the mountains. And, um, and actually, the, the wilder and, and the more remote, the, the better. We, we love to do that. On our sabbatical um, this year, since we were planning to uh, spend uh, a fair bit of time um, in the mountains, I, I had to play around with um, a little app uh, from the Ordnance Survey, which I put uh, on my phone, and it combines the the, the walking maps that the Ordnance Survey uh, produced with the GPS uh, on your phone to tell you exactly where you are uh, on the map. I, I thought it was brilliant, and, and it was very helpful when it came to sort of navigating on our walks, because we've all done it, haven't we? We've, we've taken a wrong turn somewhere, you know, either in the car, uh, Usually when Esther's navigating, of course, I, I would never do a thing like that. Um, or, or when we're out for a, a walk, something like that. And, and the consequences, of course, of taking a wrong turn um, can sometimes be very significant, can't they? In fact, uh, while we were on sabbatical, a couple of friends of ours warned us about taking a wrong turn uh, on, on one of our beach walks. They said if, if you turn right at the beach and keep walking that way, instead of turning left at the beach and walking that way, you're going to end up on the naturist part of the beach. And, and that's not going to be good uh, for anyone. So, so I was really delighted to be able to have a play around with this app uh, on my phone because it, it stopped me, stopped me from getting disoriented, which is quite easy for me, uh, stopped me taking a wrong turn with unwanted consequences. And, and maybe that's a little bit of a metaphor for how we often look at life. Uh, isn't it? Even as Christians, we, we can be tempted to look perhaps at the struggles that we're having to go through as we uh, live the Christian life for Christ and assume that we must have gone off track somewhere, that, that God's trying to tell us through the, the suffering that we've taken some kind of wrong turn. I, I mean, why else would we be facing this, this opposition, this hostility that we're facing? And I guess these Christians here in, in 1 Peter, they might have also been tempted, a bit, a bit like us, to conclude the same from the suffering that they were facing as Christians. But actually Peter's aim here uh, in this letter is, has been to, to reassure them that the suffering they're facing is actually a sign that they're on the right track, not on the wrong track. Indeed, it's the sign that they're following in the same track as the Lord Jesus. To this you have been called, he's told them in, in chapter 2, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. In, in other words, suffering for the sake of Christ, is a reality of following in the footsteps of a saviour who suffered for us. He's been telling us, hasn't he, chapter 1 verse 1, that as, as elect exiles in the world, um, our basic strategy for living, chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, uh, it is one of living in the world, not, not withdrawing from it, whilst turning away from sinful conduct and living lives of good conduct. And this is, a, this is a mission strategy, he says, because we can expect spiritual results to come from it as, as people see our good deeds and glorify God on, on the day of his visitation. 
And so we're to live out this strategy and to do so in every area of our lives. And he's been giving us examples of what that looks like, hasn't he? As, as citizens, as workers, as, as husbands and wives in, in, in chapters 2 and 3. And then in chapter 3 verse 8... He's, he's been developing this theme of, of opposition and, and of suffering by, by teaching us that we're not simply to be those who, who turn from evil and do good in a, in a neutral environment or, or in an environment where Christians will be welcomed, but in an environment where we will face slander and, and opposition and hostility and suffering for the sake of the gospel. But that as we respond to that by seeking to bless those who persecute us, well, we can expect opportunities, opportunities to give reasons for our faith, which we must be, be ready for, and which we can do with confidence. The confidence that Christ has already triumphed over sin and, and over evil. And, and we saw last week, didn't we, how, how Peter kind of continued to develop that theme in the first half of chapter 4 by, by kind of highlighting for us two particular dangers of, of living for Christ in this hostile environment the battle we face with sin and and with the unbelieving world around us and he's urged us hasn't he to to resist the temptation to cave in to the pressure by looking to Christ's example and and so to pray and to love and to serve one another with within the local church family and now in this passage what he's doing is kind of bringing this section on hostility and suffering to a bit of a close by giving us if you like um, a, a sort of a simple summary of how to live for Christ in the midst of a hostile world so, so here's uh, if you like a, a three-point framework to help us to live for Christ in a hostile environment. And, and the first thing that I, I think he wants to impress on, on his readers here, look in, in verses 12 and 13, is to embrace the pattern of Jesus' life. Have a, have a look um, with me at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, expect trials, is, is, is what he says. Don't, don't be surprised when they come, you know, as though something strange were, were going on. And, and what he means by trials there, I think is worth noting. I think somebody asked me about this the, the, the other week. And, and the trials, the suffering that, that he's been talking about, actually right through the letter, are trials that are specific to living for Christ in the world. Um, so there are other kinds of trials and sufferings that we face, aren't there? There's, there's that which is universal to everyone, and there's that which is unique to Christians. There are trials that, that are universal to everyone, and, and they're there because of the, of the sinful human condition aren't they? That, that we are sinful people, we live in a sinful and broken world. And so the trials that come because of things like, well, things like a global pandemic, <laughs> or, or like cancer, or like a heart attack, or like an interest rate fluctuation, or like a loss in the job market, or they're, they're very real trials, of course, but they're not unique to Christians, are they? They're common to, to humanity, and, and Christians are not exempt from them. But it's not those kind of universal trials that, that Peter's been talking about here in, in this letter, but rather those unique 
trials, those unique sufferings that come as a direct result of living and speaking for Christ in a world that's hostile to him. It's what Paul talks about in in, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, if you remember, when he says, everyone who wants to live uh, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or or it's what Peter talks about just across the page, look, in in chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9, where where he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do, Do you see? And, and of course, you know, we living in the UK, we may not yet be experiencing the same kind of fiery trial as, as some of Peter's readers were about to face, um, nor indeed as some of our brothers today are facing in places like Nigeria at the moment. There are some shocking reports coming out of there just now. But nevertheless, if you're seeking to live for Christ in the midst of an unsympathetic family uh, or a group of school friends who poke fun at you or a bunch of work colleagues who antagonize you, well, you know how hard it can be to keep going in the Christian life, don't you? Indeed, it can often go past simply antagonism, can't it? It it can start to impact your finances or your career progression in in certain jobs, when you get passed by for promotion perhaps because of how your faith impacts your priorities or or impacts your ethics. And, And what Peter wants to make sure here is that we're not somehow surprised by this, that we don't think this is somehow a strange thing. It's not. Don't be surprised, he tells us. Expect it. So why should we expect it Uh, Verse 13 tells us, uh, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, we should expect that suffering will be a reality for us because it was also a reality for Christ and we follow in his footsteps. But actually, friends, this verse, I think, says a whole lot more than that, doesn't it? Because it says that we share in Christ's sufferings now, that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, the pattern of Jesus' life was suffering followed by glory, Now, Peter has already hinted at this. Uh, If you look at chapter 1, verse 11, you can see he talks about the Old Testament prophets who predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, that was the pattern of Christ's life. It was a, a pattern of suffering in the flesh followed by glory to come. And and Peter's point here is that this, this pattern of Christ's life, suffering followed by glory is to be the pattern that is kind of stamped on every Christian as well. Do you you see? For now, in in the flesh, Christians will share Christ's sufferings. But what we've got coming is us sharing Christ's glory. That's the pattern. The pattern of Christ's life is, is also the pattern for the Christian's life. So don't expect it to be any different. 
And so, verse 13, he says, rejoice. <laughs> uh, which, of course, is not about rejoicing because you just love to face hostility. Um, and, and your friends from your friends and your family as, as you speak and, and live for Christ. Now, Peter's not kind of calling us to some sort of weird masochistic delight in being given a hard time. <laughs> but rather, he says, we can rejoice because our suffering for Christ is the evidence of the fact that we are on the track, end of verse 13, to seeing his glory revealed. And, and friends, in, in, the, in the face of trials and sufferings, it could be very easy, couldn't it, to wrongly conclude that God has abandoned us, that he, he doesn't care anymore, otherwise he would have delivered us from, from our suffering. But actually nothing could be further from the truth. Because Peter says that the mere fact of us suffering trials for the faith is the sign that we suffer with him in that in. in so that we might also be glorified with him. Uh, Paul puts it like that in Romans 8. Do, do, do you see the point? Peter wants us to be absolutely clear that the path to the Christian's hope of glory is through the life of sharing in Christ's sufferings. To suffer for Christ is, is not uh, an indication that we're on the wrong track. It's the indication that we're on the right track. The, the, the track of following our Saviour on the path from suffering to glory. And friends, I don't know about you, but I find that hugely comforting in the face of trials, don't you? Isn't, isn't that affirming? Isn't that a cause to rejoice? Not rejoice because of our suffering, but rejoice because we know where that suffering is all heading. So Peter says, embrace the pattern of Jesus' life. Uh, but look, he also urges them in uh, verses 14 to 18 to have confidence in the face of suffering. Because um, it, it's all very well, isn't it, to, to see the logic you know, of, of verses 12 and 13 that, that suffering leads to glory you know, for us as, as it did for Christ. So all, all very well to see the logic of that, but it's not always easy to see that clearly when you're in the middle of suffering. Um, maybe you're getting a real hammering at work or at school for your faith. Um, maybe you're struggling with, with the feeling that God's deserted you when you need him the most. Or, or maybe the ridicule and the insults that you're facing cause you to feel ashamed about your faith. Or, or maybe you feel a sense of injustice. It's just not fair. You know, these people can, can ridicule you and insult you and then they just seem to get away with it. Well, Peter wants us to have confidence in the face of suffering. Have a look at verse uh, 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <laughs> and you might be thinking here, uh, okay, Steve, first of all, I'm supposed to rejoice in my suffering for Christ, and now I'm to consider myself blessed? It's like, what planet is Peter on here? You know, he's having a laugh, isn't he? Where does he get this stuff from? Um, well, of course, he gets this stuff from the Lord Jesus. 
doesn't he? That, that phrase in verse 14, um, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's basically just a rewording of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Do, do you remember in Matthew, Matthew 5, 11 and 12? Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Peter gets this stuff from Jesus, doesn't he? And the point is that although it might feel as though you've been deserted, the reality is that you've been blessed. And then look at the end of verse 14, because he kind of builds on that thought with something I think quite remarkable. Have a look. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's already told them in verse 13 that they can rejoice as they uh, anticipate the day that's coming when, when Christ's glory will be revealed. But, but not only that, but Peter now says, even as you suffer, even in the here and now as you suffer, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And what Peter's doing here, I think, is he's picking up on the Old Testament theme of, of God's glory or, or God's spirit hovering over God's people in, in the wilderness. Or, or more specifically, it might be a reference to, to Isaiah uh, 11, uh, uh, first couple of verses, and God's spirit coming to rest on God's Messiah. Do, do you remember that? There, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And, and, and the point here, I think, is that just as the Spirit of glory and of God came to rest on God's people and on God's Messiah in the past, so he rests on God's people now. Isn't that great? I mean, isn't it? <laughs> Just as God's Spirit came to rest on God's people and God's Messiah in the past, so he rests on us as God's people now. Yes? <laughs> you know, if I was a Pentecostal, I'd be tempted to say, can I get an amen? It's just that the building is virtually empty, so uh, hopefully you're doing that at home. But friends, here's the thing. Here's what I want us to notice. Notice when we can be sure that the spirit of glory and of God is resting on us. And friends, it's not when we feel strong. It, it's not when we've had some kind of second blessing or some higher spiritual experience or when we name it and claim it or something like that. No, it's when we feel weak. It's when we're feeling got at. It's when we're smack in the middle of the kind of hostility and slander and ridicule and suffering that, that Peter says is the kind of living that we should expect. And that's because it's as we bear witness to Christ, as we live lives of turning away from evil and, and doing good, as we proclaim his excellencies, even in the pain of criticism and, and, and ridicule that is the real Christian life. It's then that we prove that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And friends, isn't, isn't that a great source of confidence as we suffer for Christ? We don't need to worry that he's deserted us. 
No, he could not be closer to us. For his spirit rests on us in the midst of our suffering. But, but of course, the, the, uh, the, the feeling of God deserting us isn't the only thing that, that might hamper us from, from em- embracing uh, the, the pattern of Jesus' suffering. It, it could be um, that, the, that the ridicule, that the insults we face uh, can cause us to feel ashamed of our faith in Christ. Have a look at verse uh, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he's kind of picking up here, I think, on what he said earlier uh, in the letter. So chapter 2, verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Or or chapter 3, verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. His point here is a similar one, I think. If you're suffering is as a result of sin, being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, well, then you might have something to be ashamed of. <laughs> but if you're suffering for being a Christian, for, for living and speaking up for Christ, well, then you've got nothing to feel ashamed about. Do you, do, do you see his point? Um, I, I reckon current examples of this, of course, are... Uh, are often around ethical issues at the moment, aren't they? Uh, issues such as abortion, perhaps, uh, or gay marriage, perhaps. A- areas where actually God's word is, is crystal clear. Uh, for example, that unborn human life is still human life. And so therefore sacred. Me- meaning that although society now affirms abortion as a good thing or an acceptable thing, God does not. Or, or that marriage in, in God's design is, is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman, even if society decides otherwise. H- however, for Christians to be asked about those kind of, of Christian ethical issues, as we often are, it, it could easily result in, in, in us uh, feeling ashamed of our Christian beliefs, couldn't it? Not because those beliefs warrant shame, because they don't. We share those beliefs with God himself. But we're tempted to feel shame about them because they're so out of step with where our society has decided to place itself at the moment. But I've also heard many comments from Christians in these kind of debates which have displayed, frankly, an, an unloving, unchristlike antipathy towards uh, those with different views, those we may disagree with. And Peter's point here is that if, as a Christian, you end up suffering for an unchristlike attitude, as you, as you talk about things like this, well, then you have something to feel ashamed about, frankly. But if you suffer simply for clearly and, and lovingly teaching the Bible on this issue, well, you've got nothing to feel ashamed about. There's no reason to feel ashamed for your allegiance to Christ, says Peter. 
It's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that it's Peter who's writing this. You know, Peter who, uh, Peter who sat by the fire in the high priest's courtyard and was embarrassed to be associated with Jesus and denied him three times before the cock crowed. But of course, friends, we, we are often no better, are we? And, and not just, actually, as we face tough questions about Christ's ethics, <laughs> but how often do we, um, do we sidestep opportunities to speak of Christ? Not, not because it's an, an inappropriate time, sometimes it is, but just because we're embarrassed of him. Well, Peter says, let him not be ashamed as a Christian, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, you are a Christian. You've been called by Christ to bear his name and be his witness. So remember this, this privilege you've been given and glorify him by not being ashamed to identify with him. There's one more group I think that Peter wants to uh, address in, in these verses and, and that's those who feel a sense, of, uh, a sense of unfairness or a sense of injustice about their, their suffering for Christ. Uh, you know, they're, they're, getting, uh, they're getting hostility, they're, they're facing insults or worse and it, it just seems so unfair that, that their suffering, uh, while the perpetrators of their suffering appear to be getting off scot-free. Well, have a look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And again, I think he's picking up here on on what he said earlier in the letter. So, for example, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, do you remember? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or or, or maybe uh, what he said here in verse uh, 12 of chapter 4, where he talks about that fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. In other words, friends, the, the suffering you face is not by chance, or by fate, and neither is it ultimately in the hands of your persecutors. No, God is sovereign in your suffering, and he sends it, and he uses it to test and refine his people. He's he's saying something similar here in verse 17, isn't he? That phrase, the household of God, was was used in in the Old Testament to refer to to the temple. And of course, Peter's already been telling us, chapter 2, verse 5, that in New Testament terms, uh, Christ's church is his temple. We are the household of God. We're the the spiritual house in in which we're living stones. And as such, we're supposed to be a holy people. And so what he's saying is, is that God is not beyond both bringing such persecutions to the household of God and then using such persecutions to to what he calls judge the household of God and what he means by judging there is that he tests the church through the through the persecution we face 
to, to, to refine us, to, to cleanse us, to, to show up in the church, those who, those who really believe and, and so will stand up for Christ under opposition, and also to weed out those who only profess to believe and, and so will fall away under, under such trials. That's a sobering verse, isn't it? Sobering verse for the church to reflect on. But the encouragement look comes in the second half of the verse when he says that if it begins with us, if, if God takes his own church, whom he, whom he loves, whom he died for, and purges us through the, the, the fiery trials of opposition, well, just consider, verse 17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And then he kind of rams that point home in verse 18 by, by kind of quoting from his Greek Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. If the righteous is scarcely saved, if, if they're saved in the midst of suffering and opposition, well then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Do, do, you, just, do you see his point? Peter brings assurance to, to these suffering Christians by reminding them of the future. Don't worry about those who uh, oppose you and, and whether they seem to go unpunished for it now while you face suffering. Don't worry about that. Take a step back. Remember the big picture. Keep an eternal perspective. Those who persecute you now, well, they, they might appear to be getting away with it. But in fact, they are heading for a calamitous fall when Christ is revealed. Which, of course, friends, is not only um, a verse of assurance for those on the receiving end of persecution, but it's also a warning to those who are handing out the persecution. And, and not only for them, but, but for, for those who act, uh, not just for those who actively oppose Christ and, and his people, but actually for all who reject him. Verse 17, for all who do not obey the gospel of God. I think that reminds us of what Peter said in chapter 2, verse 8, isn't it? That for some, Jesus is going to be a stone of stumbling. People are going to stumble and fall over Jesus because they reject him and, and his gospel. In other words, those who reject Jesus by not obeying the gospel of God will not escape his punishment, his judgment. And, and that's a verse of assurance for Christians who are suffering at the hands of such people. And it's a verse of warning to those who are such people. So how do we live for Christ in the midst of a hostile world where, where suffering is a reality for us? Well, I think Peter's got one more thing to include in his summary, and it's there in verse 19, look, where he urges us to follow Jesus as your example. Uh, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, so he's told us already in, in verses 12 and 13 to embrace the pattern of Jesus' life for our lives too, this, this pattern of suffering now and followed by glory uh, to come. Embrace that pattern, he says, because we share in Christ's sufferings that we might share in his glory. And so what does that look like in our everyday lives as we live them in the face of suffering? 
Well, what it looks like is following Christ's example. Do do you see? Embracing Christ's pattern means following Christ's example. And and specifically in two ways he, he highlights here. First he says, look, verse 19, As those who suffer for doing God's will, we must entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Which, of course, is what Jesus did on the cross, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 23, we read, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In fact, that word entrust there, it's the the same word uh, um, translated commit in Luke 23, when Jesus on the cross cries out to God, Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. So when Jesus suffered on the cross, he did so entrusting himself to a faithful God, a, a God who judges justly. And we, friends, are to follow Christ as our example, verse 19, and entrust our souls to a faithful creator do you you see when when opposition comes when when it's hard to live the christian life when we face hostility or or ridicule or slander for for doing so we must entrust ourselves to the faithful god who has not only created us but redeemed us and so keep going in the christian life banking on him um, but, but we follow his example in, an, in another way too, I think in verse 19, as those who suffer for doing good, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator whilst doing good. And, and that, of course, is, is the example of Christ as well, isn't it? Who Peter says in his sermon in Acts 10, uh, went about doing good and, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So entrusting God, trusting God and doing good. Two ways in which we follow Christ's example as we live for him in the midst of suffering. So what's the, what's the summary here? How do we live for Christ in, in the middle of a, of a hostile world? What's the, what's the summary? What's the sound bite? What's the takeaway? Peter says embrace the pattern of Jesus' life. Embrace that pattern, that life of suffering now but glory to come. And he says, have confidence in the face of suffering because it's not a sign that God's deserted you, but that he's refining you. And don't worry. Those who cause your suffering will not escape God's judgment. And he says, follow Christ's example. Entrust yourself to God and keep doing good. And we say, if I've I got to do all this by myself... <laughs> God says no. Verse 14. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The same God who who rested on his people of old in in the desert. The the, the same God who rested on Christ as he suffered. Rests on us too. In our suffering. Which which means that as as we embrace the pattern of Christ's life. We can do so trusting God, both for the glory to come and for the spirit of glory to be with us now. 
Let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we've, um, as, as we've seen over these last three Sundays, it's a, it's a hostile world that, that you call us to live in uh, as your elect exiles. But, but we thank you so much that as we do so, we are blessed that your spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Please would this give us great, great confidence in you as, as we embrace our calling and follow our Savior in the strength that he provides. We pray in his name. Amen.